0: Another, day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. It really
1: doesn't
0: matter. Hi, folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. that always, one man's good the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't, coming to you today once again from Arlington, Texas. It is March first, two thousand and ten. That means we're on our way to knocking out the first quarter. Uh, by the end of this month, the 1st 4th of 2010. Time is flying, things are happening, and uh, I think we all need to make sure that we are uh, doing everything we can to be prepared for what the coming years will bring, both 2010 and the years that follow afterward. I have an interesting show today for you. It's going to be listener feedback, but not really questions today. I'm going to I might do a question or two thrown in just to keep it moving along, but mostly it's going to be stuff you guys have sent me. Uh, There's been a lot of things going on in the past couple weeks. Uh, We've had earthquakes, we've had uh, threats of tsunami in uh, Japan and Hawaii due to earthquakes, and a lot of other things. So we're going to talk about things like that going on. We're going to talk about things today like um, everybody's been in love with gold. Um, as an investment and as an inflation hedge and things like that. And I've been saying over the past few months, I think it's too high. I'm going to give you uh, an industry analyst that says that at least the intermediate term uh, going through the rest of uh, the short term of this year anyway, I probably am. So we'll take a look at that and some other things that have come to me uh, from people around, uh, around the world. And we'll look at that, how it affects us as people that are trying to live self-sufficient lifestyles and live, have sustainable lifestyles, styles, not just because we want to fix the planet, but because we want to be able to have sustainable lifestyles so that if anything ever goes wrong, we can still take care of ourselves, take care of our family, and we also know it's just a better way To live because we're less dependent on others for our own individual happiness and resources. Before that, though, let's knock out the housekeeping today. Housekeeping item number one. Let's take care of our sponsors. Sponsor today, number one, Sawtooth Tactical. Really cool stuff. Really great service, check out sawtac.com for more and remember the best way to find our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Scroll down the uh side of the site and you'll see all of our sponsors' banners. They all go through a vetting process. We had no trouble vetting soft if we don't take just everybody. Uh next sponsor of the day today, ready made resources. Great source of everything you could possibly need for your preppy needs and for your day-to-day self-sufficiency needs. And they have something going on uh, for a little while now. How long is this thing going to run? You know, I paused real quick and checked Robert's email from uh, ReadyMate, and I, I, I absolutely he didn't tell me how long. So this might be a March sale. It might be a week-long sale. I don't know, but there's a new banner on the site uh, for Made resources indicating that right now, and you can do this now, they are running a sale 25% off all Mountain House items uh, and free shipping on case lots. Uh, so I don't know how long that sale's going to run. I'll find out for you and let you guys know. Uh, but our sponsor, Ready Made Resources, is right now, twenty five percent off all Mountain House uh, uh, foods uh, with a uh, free shipping on case lots. Next up, I want to remind you guys to check out our forum, and on our forum, not only can you just interact with people and learn things and share ideas and share projects and ask questions and all these other great things, you can actually get together with uh, forum members through our regional boards, and case in point, if you're in Region 4, anywhere near Chicago, you might want to consider going to a meet and greet on uh, Saturday of this, the end of this week, um, I'll put a link to details about it so you can learn more, so I don't tie up a lot of the show with it. But there's a bunch of people getting together in the Chicago area. And Region 4, of course, goes out to Ohio, and it's that whole kind of Midwest piece there. And I imagine you can go there from anywhere. They're not going to, like, say, hey, throw your driver's license. You better read from Region 4 or you're out. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a small one-day meet-and-greet, so it's probably something you don't want to drive too far for. But if you're anywhere in that area... Hey, check it out. Consider going out and actually meeting some people. I know every time I meet somebody from the audience, it's a great experience. I just actually went this weekend and, and hung out with one of our listeners that's here from the Arlington area, looked at his backyard, gave him some advice on permaculture uh, and what he could do with uh, growing things in his backyard. So reach out. I try to do the same thing myself and show up at uh, meet and greets whenever I can. I think you should do that. I think it's a big difference when you start to actually meet people, look them in the eye, press palms, and realize there's other people out there just like you. Last but not least, consider joining the member support brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. Hey, it's springtime. You're going to be planning. I got free shipping for you from High Mowing Organic Seeds, and I got 10% off from Seeds of Change just for your seed needs. I got 7% for you from Shelf Reliance. Uh, I've got a free discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. That's a $29 value. i got a preferred membership for free for you from Western Botanicals. That's a $50 value. And then I have about 12 other vendors that give you discounts. I've got $100 worth of ebooks. i got 20 members only videos. That's all in the members brigade for $50 a year or $5 a month your choice. Alright. Enough of that. Let's get into kind of the things I wanted to talk about today. The first one's kind of interesting. It's, uh, it's what I've been kind of saying about gold, but this guy has more technical reasons than just my gut that it was too high. This actually comes from an e uh, email newsletter that I subscribe to, so I won't be able to give you an online link, but it looks like they have a PDF version, so I'll put that on my server and I'll link to it so you guys can read the full thing for yourself. But basically, the, uh, the title of, the, uh, of this week's uh, email newsletter from them is Gold About to Go Downhill. Now, look, anybody that uh, sells financial advice and puts out... Uh e-newsletters like this, I always have healthy skepticism with whatever they say, but generally speaking, they're pretty well informed, and you get good generic advice from them. It's when they start giving you advice that says you should buy something that, that my spider sense kind of comes up, and they're not trying to sell me anything here, so... Let me, uh, let me give you their reasoning for why gold may be about to see, uh, losses in the intermediate term. Number one, right now the US dollar is strengthening. Typically when the dollar and gold bullion move, move in opposite directions. So when the dollar strengthens, gold goes down. And when the dollar weakens, gold goes up simply because it takes more dollars to buy less gold, you know, buy the same amount of gold when the value of the dollar drops. Well right now, you know, and that's why people hold gold because it's a hedge against inflation uh, and a hedge against assets against a weak currency. Uh, but right now, with the negative developments in Europe, and Greece in particular, or Greece, I don't know if you guys know this, but Greece is about to implode on itself. Um, Because having to participate in the European Union and having to do all the things to make the euro currency their own and then getting kind of stuck into that mess and not learning the lesson from what a federal government has done to things like, oh, I don't know, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and the United States of America now, uh, Europe has continued with their experiment and stupidity of trying to make individual sovereign nations act like one – and uh, has tanked the economy of Greece, among other things. So as the euro becomes unstable, uh, specifically with things like failures in, in, the, in an economy like Greece, which is like, well, what do they do? Well, what they do, they're like, to me, they're like the canary in the coal mine. If any nation should be okay, it should be Greece. Uh, but they're not. So that fear has investors that, even though they don't like what the U.S. is doing, returning to the dollar is an is a, is a, is a inflation hedge, you know, once again, buying uh, treasury bills from our government is a place to just hold large stockpiles of money that's relatively safe, even at a low interest. Um, so, that's happening. A lot of money moving out of the euro into the dollar, strengthening the dollar. The next thing is that inflation is likely to remain tame. You know, gold is a traditional inflation hedge. When inflation increases, gold usually rises but the consumer price index actually fell in January for the first time in more than 27 years. So that's, the, that's how much we're paying for stuff. So we've actually seen deflation as of January. Uh, this past week, conference board reported that the consumer confidence also dropped 11 points in February, a sign of a weak economic recovery. So remember what I've been saying, that we would have a false recovery before the next big dump. This, like, we're going to go off the cliff forecast, this is not the case here. This seems to bear that out. Um, and, and what we're seeing right now is inflation can't happen right now, even though we've printed so much money because so many people are holding on to that money, so few people are spending that money because America has waken up, at least for a little while, and because of that, because money's not being spent, businesses are still having to cut prices to get people to spend any money at all. So inflation is likely to be contained, at least in the next several months, is the, uh, what this analyst is saying, and I think he's right, and I think it might be contained overall throughout most of 2010. Remember what I have said over and over again, inflation always looks like recovery. So we'll have a stagnant, 2010 with a little bit of a false recovery, maybe toward the end it'll start to look good. That's what they want. That's what the government wants. All that stimulus money that everybody's so upset about, they're like, it didn't work? Well, they didn't spend the money yet. 66% of that money is going to start pouring into the economy in late March. So that $800 billion that you've heard about, about $150 billion of it's been spent so far. So that leaves about $650 billion that they're going to prime the pump with going into an election year. So what we're likely to see is, this: even if the economy starts to recover, as long as people hold on to their money, as long as people don't go out and spend, 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 then we'll see that economy stay level and we'll see inflation held in check during that time. That's what this guy is saying. Next fundamental that he's saying is the supply of gold is high. In September of 2009, the International Monetary Fund announced the sale of 403 tons of gold to several central banks. It recently put another 191 tons up for sale, although some analysts believe China would likely purchase the IMF's bullion. China announced in the past week that it would not be buying the gold. China's basically said, we've got enough. We're good for now. Um, with no clear buyer in sight, the IMF sale puts a large supply of yellow metal on the market, thereby putting pressure on its price. And what we have right now is 190 tons of gold sitting available to the world market with no one claiming it yet. Supply and demand curve takes over. And then the next one is the jewelry market is weakened. Approximately 80% of the total demand for gold actually comes from the jewelry industry. But the impact of the recession combined with high gold prices in 2009 led to a 22% drop in demand for gold jewelry. Because consumers cut back on luxury and discretionary items uh, in a recession, gold jewelry purchases fell like 8% uh, to 2,000 tons in 2009. India, and I don't think people realize, India was the biggest gold-consuming country out there um, for jewelry, Uh, but gold imports in in India went down 55%, because they're worried about eating now. Okay, 126 tons in the first half of 2009 uh, was all that they imported into uh, into India. And then China's economic growth has slowed as well, so that's also one of the biggest gold-consuming countries It's now buying less gold. So, what this guy's saying is that those factors add up again, a strengthening dollar, uh, inflation remaining uh, light and in check, uh, gold supply being high, and the weakening of the jewelry market specifically in, in two nations with over a billion people that have been purchasing a lot of this gold up till now. And, and the jewelry thing something that, that's had my gut telling me gold is too high because As long as we don't have a couple billion, you know, Chinamen and Indians uh, out there buying a lot of gold watches and gold chains, which was a huge part. Do you understand these countries were coming into their own and starting to develop a middle class for the first real time ever? You know, with with two totally different economic models, but that's what was happening. And as these, these people were starting to become successful and have surplus income, they were looking for status symbols and a lot of them turned to gold. Well, as soon as they start to get hurt, the status symbol means less and putting food on the table means more. And what you have to remember is unlike Generation Stupid running around the U.S. right now, which is all the people between about 20 and 40, which includes me, so don't be offended if that's you, but Generation Stupid here is two generations disconnected from reality. These people in China Indi- in India, they're not disconnected from reality at all yet. So as soon as they felt a gut check, they pulled back. So that's why I've said gold is too high. I think you're going to get good gold-buying opportunities sometime in 2010. I don't know what the target price is yet, because if it falls down to 800 bucks, people say, Jack, should I buy? I don't I'll have to tell you, look at what's going on. That If all these conditions are still the same and gold is at $800, you're going to see it keep coming down. So I am for having gold as part of your portfolio. I just have not been buying since it cracked up, you know. A thousand dollars an ounce, and I've refused to, and this is why, right here. Alright, let's take another event that's going on out there. How about a little of humor? Um, this is from, uh, Keith Cuthbert, or Kevin Cuthbert, uh, who's the guy that donated two really great ebooks to the MSB. One on building a, a, a clay oven, uh, and the other one on aquaponics, and they're both awesome ebooks. Uh, but he sent me a little bit of, uh, uh, humor here. And uh, it's about his government, but it could be about any government. Basically, it says that nuclear physicist's department have discovered a new uh, element, the heaviest element yet known as science. The new element is called governmentonium. Uh, it's a GV abbreviation. It has only one neutron, 25 assistant neutrons, 88 deputy neutrons, and 198 assistant deputy neutrons, giving it an atomic mass of 312. These 312 particles are held together by forces called morons, which are surrounded by vast quantities of lepton-like particles called peons. Since governmentonium has no electrons, it is inert. However, it can be detected because it impedes every reaction with which it comes into contact. A tiny amount of governmentonium can cause a reaction that would normally take less than a second. It take from four days to four years to complete. Governmentonium has a normal half-life of two to six years, Election cycles, folks. It does not decay, but instead undergoes a reorganization in which a portion of the assistant neutrons and deputy neutrons exchange places. In fact, governmentonium's mass will actually increase over time since each reorganization will cause more morons to become neutrons, uh, forming Isotopes. Isotopes. <laughs> The characteristic of moron promotion leads some scientists to believe that governmentonium is formed whenever morons reach a critical concentration. This hypothetical quantity is referred to as critical morass. When catalyzed with money, governmentonium becomes administratium an element that radiates just as much energy as governmentonium since it has half as many peons but twice as many morons. So there's your daily dose of humor from the Survival Podcast. And I'm not going to say why I'm about to do this, but for one guy on the forum, holy shiznit, that was funny. All right, moving on from there, uh, let's look at the next thing that I have to chat with you guys about today. This is one It's just kind of an idea guy has, and I think this would be good. And if you would like to participate in this, I'd like you to send me a, 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 an email, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, and just put in the subject line, conference interview show, conference interview show that will help me sort this out, and give me your story. I'll explain what that is as I read this guy's email. This is from a guy named John. John says, hey, I live in Orange County, New York. We just got hammered by the snow hurricane, uh, which was the hurricane-like snowstorm, the nor'eastern that blew into the northeast. Uh, if I weren't at work, I'd not be able to write. Plenty of folks around here are still without power and standard communication despite the arrival of line crews from as far away as Michigan to help with repairs. Again, folks, look at this. We've got a little disaster in the northeast. We're coming from Michigan to help. Alright, we've got to think about the scope and size of disasters here. Uh, I can honestly say that having listened to your shows this early summer of 2009 helped. I had plenty of flashlights and batteries, candles, food, a kerosene heater, and fuel. Alas, I do not have a generator and won't for a while due to cost. I had to buy a chainsaw, long story, don't ask, but otherwise my wife, five kids, and two dogs did great. I have a suggestion, what if you did a show where you interview people who've been listening to you and have had their preps tested in a, in real life? In a conference call, you could ask what worked and how they learned about shortfalls and gaps in their preps, what they found really valuable, etc. Another whole aspect could be about encounters. People get so stressed and so unreliable, unpredictable when their daily routines are disrupted. I was challenged to a fist fight because a guy at a donut shop was pissed that the line was so long. It was the only one in the area with power. Wow. Uh, I used my diplomacy skills to avoid the fight. Good. Um, Love your show. Thanks for the good advice and wisdom. Uh, John. I I like that idea. To keep it under control, I'd like to get a group of somewhere between six and ten people that if you started listening to the Survival Podcast, and any time since then, you've had... Just you know, a snowstorm or any type of thing that would be an emergency or just a major inconvenience. Send me an email. Give me your story. I can put together a conference call with recording. We could all get on there and talk about it. I don't want to get too big or it'll it'll lose its flow. And I'll just call on people and we talk about it and chime in. I think that would make a great show. Maybe even a series of shows. So again. Uh, send that email to at com if you'd like to participate in that. We're probably looking at the end of the month before I'd actually be able to do that show due to some things that are coming up very, very soon. Okay, let's go on to the next one from a listener. Okay, here's one that, I mean, I, I hope people have already understood this, but it's very insightful because I've been screaming it at you almost since the very beginning, that the disaster is not the problem. The aftermath of the disaster is the real problem. Here's what this guy says. This is from a guy named Christopher. Christopher says, Jack, I'm wondering if the real lesson from Chile is only now starting to emerge. The country was hit by a massive event that knocked out large amounts of infrastructure, but resulted in relatively few casualties compared to the magnitude of the quake. Chile's emergency responders are stretched to the limit, and now the beginnings of civil unrest are starting to take seed looting, etc. I'm not being critical, but maybe it's a lesson about what I think of as the transition or in-between time. Meaning that first there's a disaster, attack, economic collapse, etc. Then six months, or one, or five, or ten years later, and he's right, it could vary based on the disaster, how long this period lasts, the populace is living the new normal. Between the disaster and the new normal, so think about what new normal means. It means a lot of things, folks. It means everything working again, but it also means people being able to mentally accept the new normal. Think about 9-11. For a good month after that, even if you weren't in an area where your infrastructure or anything was uh, affected, the way you looked at the world was totally different, and it took a while for your mind to adjust to the fact that this happened. Okay? And some people are still struggling with that. But I think it took the average American 30 to 60 days to, to totally shift their mindset and accept it. And still had a lot of problems thinking about it and, and was you know still watching I Love Lucy reruns and things like that back then. But there was a, even the people that didn't lose anybody, that weren't directly affected by it, were in the other side of the country, that just witnessed it. It takes time for the mind to adjust. So there's a mental adjustment for the new normal. New normal and if things are broken, there's a rebuilding time. So that things can go back to some semblance of normal, I think he's talking about both between the disaster and the new normal is the transition or in between time, and the in between time seems like the most dangerous time because the the. Uh the, the, the pre-disaster social norms have faded and the new normal social norms have not yet taken root. It seems our whole situation awareness has to change. I wonder about how quickly local governments will recognize and adapt to the dangers of transition. And to eat some humble pie, I wonder about how quickly I will recognize and adapt to them too. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Thanks, Chris. I think you're dead on, Chris, but it's it, again, it's what I've been saying. Whenever there's a disaster, we have to think about this from an acute and chronic concept like we think about diseases. An acute onset illness is like a flu. It comes, it rages, it peaks, and if it doesn't kill you, once it peaks, it's all downhill and recovery from there. And that's how most disasters are. An earthquake starts, it shakes, the buildings are rumbling, the the pillars come down, smash, and eventually, even if it's a long quake like we had in Chile recently, um, 90 seconds to a minute, somewhere in between those two, and it stops. And unless there's some aftershocks, there might be, but those are very short duration usually. The disaster itself has, has happened. Now we have to pull people out of the rubble. But even pulling people out of the rubble, I mean, look, if they don't get you out of the rubble within a couple weeks, you, you've starved or dehydrated. And there's always that one guy that comes out as a miracle three weeks later or something. But it's not the normal. It's the, it's the, the exception. Now, we kept waiting to see that happen with 9-11, and it didn't, sadly, that we have to say. Um, But basically, even that part is a short-term thing, a couple weeks. But then we have this whole new normal that has to take shape. And during this period of time, people that were accustomed to certain things being given in their life no longer have them. And if they're totally unprepared, their adjustment is much more difficult than somebody that's somewhat prepared or someone that's fully prepared, or as prepared as they possibly could become. All of a sudden, going down to the grocery store is impossible. All of a sudden, even if you are okay just traveling, your travel may be impeded. There may be people out there that want to take away what you have. There may be government officials that are limiting travel and imposing martial law. Sometimes the government imposing martial law is an abuse of power. Sometimes it's necessary and it's the only thing that prevents the total breakdown of civil decay. Sometimes martial law is not enough to prevent the breakdown. Cuz let's let's be honest. The government sends 10,000 troops to a city like Dallas and one in 10 people revolt. Oh well, that's 600,000 people. 600,000 men with sticks and stones. Can defeat 10,000 well-armed men with rifles. So that's always, when you see martial law impaired, the people imposing that martial law are always at huge risk because they're always vastly outnumbered by people that can become desperate and immediately can go from an individual mentality to a pack mentality. Chris is absolutely right. That's what I've been saying for over a year now. It's not the disaster. It's people's reaction to the disaster that we have to be concerned with. And it's why we need to be prepared and prepared in a way that gives us flexibility. When I talk to a person and I say, well, what would you do? And they say, we're just going to bug in and wait no matter what. I always say, "You, you have one plan. And the problem with one plan is it only works for certain contingencies. And immediately when one contingency outside of that spectrum comes to be, your whole plan falls apart. It's great that you have a good plan for bugging in. You better have a good plan for bugging out, too. It's great that you plan to grow your own food. You better have a plan for if you can't grow your own food. Due to climatic conditions. Due to the time of year that the disaster occurs in. Due to the fact that you were forced out of your location. And wherever you go, you don't have the ability or the time to grow food. doesn't mean you don't grow food. It doesn't mean you don't make it part of your lifestyle. But it also means you don't solely rely on it. That's why you need stored foods. This is why what we do is important. I want you to think about the fact that Chile is really a fairly modern country. It, It really is. It's a fairly nice place to live. They have beautiful suburbs that if I dropped you off in the middle of some of these Chilean suburbs, that you would just look around and go, oh, it's like America, you know? You wouldn't even know you're somewhere else. People, I think, have this misconception, Americans especially, that anybody in South America or any, anywhere outside of Europe and the United States and Canada, anything other than those things is some kind of backwards place. And we've, we've lost touch with the fact the rest of the world has developed with us, especially over the last 40 years. They've really come a long way. There's, there's beautiful suburbs in China. There's beautiful suburbs in Japan. There's beautiful little country homes all over the world, and as people that live in those country homes are just as ill-affected by this as people in the inner cities. In some ways, maybe not as much because they have more resources, but when it comes right down to it, we're all equal when survival comes into the equation. When the food supply is cut, when our freedoms are in- infringed upon, And when we have to compete with others for resources that used to be in abundance, it's a great equalizer. So, Chris, you're dead on. And, folks, I want you to really think about this right now, if you haven't before. The simple statement, the disaster is only 10% of the problem. 90% of the problem is the aftermath and the disaster and the way that people respond to it. And I want you to think about how many scenes you've seen of crowd violence. where every, All the tension's high, but everybody's holding back, and one person throws a rock. And when that one person throws a rock, one of the riot police gives the guy a club to the face, which he had coming. I think any third-party observer would go, hey, man, don't throw rocks at the police, especially when they're not doing it. When they're just standing there to make sure that you stay in check, and they've not advanced on you, they haven't sprayed anybody, and you go throw a rock at them, you're gonna get, but once that happens, everybody goes nuts, and people lose control, including the police, or including the military, both sides. And as it builds and it heightens, people do things they would never normally do. Even turning on people in, on their own side. A lot of the damage done in these, these crowd violence is crowd on crowd violence. People that were there for the same reason. They were supposed to be common, you know, enemies or, you know, what we would call allies. And all of a sudden, once the, the violence starts to break down, people just look for anybody that's in the way. And that person becomes a target. And this is a human dynamic. And it's sad that it's a human dynamic. And we would like to believe that we've evolved beyond it. But it's basal and it's at our core. That in these types of situations where adrenaline is charged, we go fight or flight. And even the people that go flight, as their flight is impeded, then the only other response is fight. Does that make sense? That even the guy that wants to run away, when he can't run away, now he has to fight. And he'll do a lot of damage in his attempt to escape. And the only way to combat this and not let it work against you is to stay out of that mob in the first place and have a plan so you don't end up there. And a lot of people say, well, I'll never end up there. Well, when you're hungry and you have no food and you're not prepared and trucks roll up with food on them, the only way you're going to get some food is to go there and stand in line with that mob and hopefully get your food and leave before the situation turns ugly, which it almost always does. And these are the realities. Disaster, long-term impact is the aftermath of people's reaction to the disaster. Please, you know, if you don't listen to anything else I say today, please let that sink in because it's something that could save your life and give you enough motivation to do the preparedness things that you need to so you don't have to end up in those situations. Here's one I've been asked about a lot, so I'll go ahead and talk about it. Um, it's the, the new stuff that's going on for the past few weeks with Starbucks and their decision to not infringe upon your right to carry a gun, but more specifically, their decision not to infringe upon the rights of people to carry openly in states that have open carry laws. Uh, So some states, Virginia being one of them, have laws that allow its residents to carry a handgun openly, displayed. Some states are open carry only, so you can carry, but only openly, no concealed carry. Some states are concealed carry only, so you can carry concealed but not open. Some states offer both options for people, which I think is the constitutional answer. All right, so this article that somebody sent, there's a lot of articles about this now. Um, Dale w- Welsh recently walked into a Starbucks in Virginia, had a gun strapped to his waist, and ordered a banana frappuccino with a cinnamon bun. He says the firearm drew a double take from at least one customer, but not a peep from the baristas. Uh, Welsh's foray in Toppy House was part of an effort by some gun owners to exercise and advertise rights, in states that allow people to openly carry firearms, uh, even in some even in some open carry, businesses are allowed to about ban guns in their stores, and some have, creating a political confrontation. With gun owners, Starbucks, the largest chain targeted, has refused to take the saying in a statement this month that it follows the state and local laws and has its own safe measures in its stores. Okay. So here's the deal: I have mixed emotions on this. On one hand, if you're if you don't normally carry openly but you go do it at Starbucks just to make a point, I think you're agitating a situation that we really don't need to agitate. But it is within your rights. But here's the, here's the lunacy. So we got the Brady campaign saying crap like, um, we need to have people at Starbucks getting espresso shots, not gun shots. This should be a gun-free zone inside of Starbucks. Okay, so listen, the guy that's going to go to Starbucks with a gun? To rob people or shoot people will not care if there's a law that says he's not allowed to open carry inside a Starbucks or a policy. If you don't respect a law, you're not going to respect a store policy. So, people going in there with guns displayed are no more of a threat than they would be if the policy was no guns whatsoever. Because the only person that's actually going to carry out a threat is going to go in there and carry it out anyway, regardless of the law. This is something that the antis don't get. But I want to just... I just want to put this in perspective for you in a way that will make everything about your dynamics on the situation change. If you have issues with open carry, if you think that it causes fear in people's hearts and things like that, I'm going to change that paradigm for you right now. I walk around my town, Arlington, all the time, and our little town in the south of Mansfield, and in Grand Prairie, Texas, I go there. And when I'm up in Hot Springs, I go to little places around there all the time. And all throughout those cities and towns, in little town I grew up in, in Pennsylvania, and when I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, when I was even younger, uh, all around those places there were police officers. And I'd see those police officers walking around in their uniforms with a great big gun on their hip, shotgun in the back of their car. All over the place, they come and I'd say hi. Guys leaving with his coffee and donut. Don't hate. I hate the stereotypical make a cop, but I notice something. They hit. There's a reason the stereotypes there. And hold the door for him. Hey, have a good day, officer. Be safe out there. All right, back at you. Now that guy walks around carrying mace, a club, a taser, gun, ammunition, all on a giant belt. Nobody says, "Oh my God, the children are going to be intimidated." Oh no. They'll be living in fear. And then people will say, but Jack, that guy's a law enforcement officer. He's a police officer. You know, he's he's wearing a uniform. The uniform tells us he's one of the good guys. Okay, so no cops have ever been dirty? Or no cops have ever shot anybody ever unjustly? Oh, wait, okay, that breaks it. Yeah, but most of them. Okay, fine. Do you know how easy it is for me to get a uniform and look just like a police officer and walk around your town? It's not hard. So the person that would break the law could be walking into your Starbucks right now dressed as a police officer and you think he's safe. What if we started teaching our children that the guy that you know you still don't talk to strangers and stranger danger and all that, but especially as they get a little bit older, but the person that carries openly is nothing to hide. He's clearly armed. We don't have old West shootouts or anything like that. He's obviously a law abiding citizen because it attracts attention to him. If you're walking around with a pistol in an open carry mode, and you go into a facility and a law enforcement officer has, happens to be there. He immediately takes notice of you. You're less likely to get away with it than if you hit it, whether it's illegal or not. Maybe we need to start understanding that the only people that would ever open carry legally would be people that have nothing to hide. And maybe we need to understand that those people are Americans with some semblance of civic duty. I don't know. It's a tough one. But I just find it ironic that somebody would fear me walking around carrying openly uh, in a place where it's legally acceptable, but then wouldn't fear it when, you know, ten police officers walk in armed to the teeth. Not that I'm against police officers. I'm saying I'm just as nice a guy as they are. And just because you're wearing a uniform of any color or stripe doesn't guarantee anybody that you're not a threat. Because everybody can have a mental breakdown. As we saw from a United States Army major not that long ago, so the reality here is we have to stick to a simple fundamental: the right of the people of this nation to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And notice there is there is nothing in there that says unless. Shall not mean shall not. So uh, from that point, let's go on to something else. So I don't get tied into this one for a little too long. Just so much gun stuff in my inbox right now. We got we got. Uh, it, people that have a big issue with the fact that people can now carry inside national parks and, oh no, now they're going to poach. Again, not understand. I've got a guy that I want to read his story on there, but I'm not going to do it today at this point, who was fired from his job because he had a gun in his vehicle. They um, treated him like a criminal because of that, even though he broke no laws whatsoever. Uh, I'm going to tell you his story later this week. Um But I need to get off the gun thing because it's getting me fighting mad, and it's Monday, and I don't need to be fighting mad on a Monday. i got a whole week ahead of me. So the next one totally deviates and goes off in another direction, which is good, and it's uh, from a blog post. And, folks, if you ever talk about me in your blog, good, bad, or indifferent, there's a good chance I'll read it. I have a uh, blog search alert set up so that uh, when anybody ever mentions me or survival Podcast. I get a little email from Google telling me that it's showing up in their their blog search engine. I do that as a PR move to make sure if somebody's saying something that's bad, I don't really care. If somebody's saying something negative, I don't really care. If someone's saying something that's false, I I get pissed off and I respond to it because I don't like being lied about. And I also do it because I like to hear when people are saying interesting things or good things about me. This one just kind of mentions me as an aside um, but it really uh, gives a great resource that I wanted to make you guys aware of. Uh, it comes from a guy uh, who runs a blog called Spish Blogs Journal. Well, on this blog, he has a post right now called Ever-Expanding Interest in Permaculture, and here's kind of the first uh, paragraph. Having spent a lot of time in the great outdoors, I was aware of the synergy uh, that the web of life provides, but it never gave me much thought about interrelationships within the home landscape. Jack Spirko and his TSB podcast helped enlighten me to the principles of permaculture. I've been hooked on permaculture research ever since, from watching videos on YouTube, reading books and web forums, listening to podcasts, and most recently watching distance learning college classes on iTunes U. I can't wait uh, to learn. I can't learn enough, quick enough. This is what I wanted to talk to you about. He mentions G- his uh, G- garden. He mentions uh, permaculture designers manual. Both. Re- uh, uh, references that I've recommended, but the, the, uh, iTunes U thing I found very, very interesting. It turns out that it's, uh, what is the uh, university? Is it North Carolina? Yeah, North Carolina State University offers a college course on permaculture. And, uh, it's a 36 uh, hour class, 36 lessons, each an hour long, and they're all on video. And basically, you can get the same education that a college student at North Carolina State University does on permaculture off of iTunes University. And here's the really cool thing. You can get it for free. You can get every single one of these videos for free. Now, let me tell you something. An hour-plus-long video is a big file. Don't go download them all at once. Go download, like, first three, watch them, delete them, and download the next three like that, or you are going to clutter up your hard drive on your computer. We're talking gigabytes of information, not to mention if you're using an iTouch with, you know, 32 gig, you probably fill it up just with these videos. So you want to take them a couple at a time, but I think it's so cool that right now you can go get a college class for free. On permaculture. Now, you ain't going to get a grade, and you ain't going to get a credit, and I guess the constructor, if you did the projects, isn't going to grade them for you. But I think that for a subject like this, people are more interested in the knowledge than they are in the grade. And I think it's awesome that we're moving into a world now where you can get education from world-class instructors, world-class universities for free. And I think we're going to start to see more and more dynamics of change taking place in the world and more and more freedom and liberty with education and more and more employers starting to take my philosophy as I've run businesses in the past is I don't care what your credentials are. I care what you know and what you can do. So, I think there's probably a tremendous amount of things out on iTunes. I didn't really understand how this thing worked until now. So, I'm going to start looking for some other stuff. But apparently, it's pretty hard to find this thing unless you know exactly what you're looking for. But if you go to the iTunes store and search for the following, all, no spaces, HS432. Again, uh, Hotel Sierra 4. HS432, uh, that is the course number, and you'll find it. If you kind of dig down from there, you can subscribe to it, and then it'll put all of the lessons in your iTunes, and you can download them as you want to. Again, don't download all 36 at one time. That would be a bad idea because they are pretty thick files. Uh, but it's a pretty decent quality video. The instructor's pretty good. Uh, it, it's a class, so, you know, he has his first five minutes of the class where he's talking about, like, your projects and stuff like that. But, hey, fast forward through it, just like you fast-forward through parts of this show you don't like. Um, that's the nice thing about on-demand material. So, I really recommend you check this out. I'm learning a lot from the guy already. He is kind of a vegan hippie to a degree. Um, but I think you can learn a lot from him, and I think he really knows what he's doing. And if he, I think it's episode five where he shows a, a like a tour of his backyard. It's pretty amazing what he and his wife have done, and I really recommend that resource. So let's go ahead and see what else I can throw at you before we wrap up today. But, by the way, I will put a link to this guy's blog so you can check it out, and I'll put in my show notes today exactly what to search for on iTunes uh, if you're traveling and can't write it down right now, what have you. It's we're on permaculture, let's take a quick question. I think a lot of people might have similar questions, or don't even realize they have the question yet, but as they get into mechanics of putting things together, they, uh, they may realize they have this question themselves. <coughs> uh, this comes from a person named Mark. Well, Mark says, can you ex- please explain about nitrogen fixing? I'm interested in planting groomy berries, uh, with my fruit trees. When? Uh, as in what part of the year is the fixed nitrogen available to the fruit trees? I asked this question because you've referred to using beans as nitrogen fixer before, but with the view of chopping the beans off, of their, and their roots and releasing the nitrogen nodules. What happens with a perennial like gummy berries? Okay, and gummy go, berries for those of you these little red, delicious little berries from this great little bush slash tree uh, that's out of uh, the the Russian area of the world, uh, kind of is up into Siberia and down into the Baltic states. These things grow, and it's a nitrogen fixer among other things. It's not even a legume. At least I can't consider it a legume based on what I know about your legumes. But whether it's this bush, whether it's sea uh, which also is a nitrogen fixer, or whether it's a traditional legume like locust or lucena or moringa or acacia or mesquite or any of the uh, legume-style coffee bean tree, any of these trees that produce nitrogen or bushes that produce nitrogen, there's two possible ways that nitrogen gets from their root nodules into the soil and becomes bioavailable for other plants. One is through the seasonal cycles. So what happens is this tree is a great big solar collector. It's got leaves on it throughout the summer. And all those little nitrogen nodules form on the roots because it's bacteria that have a symbiotic relationship with the tree's roots. And they go on there and they make these little nodules of nitrogen. The tree gets the, uh, the nitrogen, and the bacteria gets the environment to live on from the trees and the root system. Now, when the tree goes dormant in the winter, a lot of those nitrogen nodules will fall away because the bacteria can never, no longer be sustained by the tree because it's dormant. So that's one type. Now, some of these trees are evergreens. Uh, and they don't go dormant. And if that's the case, then that doesn't happen. But most of these are trees that in our climates are going to go dormant or even possibly die every year. There's people that plant moringa and lucena, and it grows up to about eight feet high in one season, and it's dead by the end of that season. It can't handle the frost. And they just grow it again year after year after year. It's a shade plant, is a small firewood plant, uh, it's, it is the, you take the leaves and feed it to livestock. And put nitrogen into the soil. When that tree dies, of course, again, the nitrogen goes into the soil. But there's a third way for you to control the situation to get nitrogen into your soil. And that's you allow these trees to grow to a certain height, and then you cosmos them back. And when we think of cosmosing, we usually think of cosmosing oak trees for firewood. So an oak tree, you might cut it a couple feet above the ground on an angle, and then it'll sprout new tree. Right out of there, and it'll produce more wood. In seven years, you can cut it again. In seven years, you can cut it again. Even firewood over and over, because that root system's so huge now, it can support growth much faster than planting a new tree. But cosmosing has many applications, and nitrogen fixation is another one of them. So I take my groomy berry tree, and I plant it around some apples and things like that. And I let it grow to a certain height, and I decide I'm gonna maintain this, this bush, at let's say a height of about four feet. So I let it grow up to about six, and I cut two feet off, and I throw those two feet of branches and limbs right on the ground. And every time it grows back, I cut it back down to four feet. And I pick a height that I'm going to let it get to, and a height I'm going to prune it back to. And I do it over and over and over again. Now, what most people don't realize, when you look at a tree like that, the root system underground is very close To the canopy system overhead, they balance each other. Trees and bushes are pumps. They have to have a certain amount of leaves and branches above to pump water from the soil. And then they have to have a root system that's equivalent to that above-ground biomass to get that moisture out of the soil and to be supported back by... So it's not that the roots support the tree. The roots support the above-ground tree, but above-ground tree is also supporting the roots. They are uh, symmetrical in nature for a reason. They need to be. So every time I cut back my nitrogen-fixing tree or bush, a certain percentage of my root system underground drops off. and Because it has to. Because I can't have that big of a root system with this much smaller of a tree. So the tree adapts. Just like a lizard dropping its tail, the tree will drop some of its roots. Now, this doesn't harm the tree. This is the tree... Seeking a point of homeostasis, and as the tree begins to grow again, the roots begin to grow again, and we can do this as many times as we like until we sap all the energy from the tree, and eventually we can kill some trees this way. So what we do is we plant more of these types of trees: sea berry, legumes, um, uh, gumi berry, anything that produces nitrogen. We plant more of them than we want in our mature system. So it's okay if a few of them die along the process. Now, a lot of them, this cosmosing is not very harmful at all, and you can do it for 10 years with no ill effects. Some of them you you may lose. But, it's again, it's okay. It's part of secession, going from one type of landscape to another. It's natural that not all of the plants make it from the beginning to the end, but they all serve a purpose along the way. So this tree now is performing three functions at a minimum. Number one, it's providing nitrogen to the soil for other trees. Number two, as I cosmos it and drop it, just drop it on the ground, right there, underneath all the trees, it's providing mulch and organic matter that are breaking down and enriching the soil. And three, it's providing food for both myself and possibly for wildlife or for livestock. Because throwing a couple of those into your chicken's feed every day will make them quite happy. So you see how that plant has multiple functions. That's what makes it a permaculture function. Additionally, since maybe I'm growing it up to about four feet, maybe I plant a few beans, five or six runner beans, right around that little bush. I let them grow right up in there with it. And then, after I harvest my beans, I cut them back. I put them back down to the soil, but I've also put more nitrogen into the soil with that. And beans are a forest plant. Anywhere on your edges, which is where you're going to be planting your smaller bushes, right? You don't plant a little bush out in the middle of your forest. You plant it out on the edge where it gets some sun. That's a perfect environment to grow beans and squash in as well. So now it can become a living trellis that gets my beans up, and maybe my apple trees higher, and maybe the beans crawl up my my uh, goomy berry bush, and they go onto my apple tree and climb further up from there. And now I have added a fourth function for this tree. You see how you have to stack functions together? That's what makes something permaculture. And if it's not stacking function. It's not permaculture. And if it's harming anything, people or the environment, it's not permaculture. Now, does that mean that uh, a permaculturist can't use a car or a tractor because they're using evil CO2 producing gasoline? Absolutely not. And every major DVD that I've ever watched on permaculture showed mechanized equipment used as part of the process. If you look at the work that Jeff Lawton does, that guy uses more tractors and bulldozers uh, than most construction crews do when he goes in to prepare a piece of property. So does Bill Mollison. See that's why I love permaculturists. The, the real permaculturists, the founders of this movement, are sticking their finger in people's faces and going, "Your car is evil." What they're saying here's a better way to live, a more sustainable way that produces abundance in your life versus scarcity. So, survivalists, when I see something that works better and creates abundance and deals with problems of scarcity, what I see as a solution. That's why I'm such an advocate of permaculture. So there's your little permaculture lesson today from me. And get that 36 hours of free, world-class instruction from the University of South Carolina for free as well. I think this last thing that I'm going to wrap up with today is kind of interesting and it tells us a lot. It comes to me from a person named Eric. And Eric uh, sends me this uh, link to a story on Yahoo News. And the title of the story is, Scientists Defend Warning After Tsunami Non-Event from the Associated Press. And what this says is uh, the warning was ominous. its prediction is dire. Oceanographers issued a bulletin telling Hawaii and other Pacific islands that a killer wave was heading their way with terrifying force and that urgent action should be taken to protect lives and property. But the devastating tidal surge predicted after Chile's magnitude 8.8 earthquake for areas uh, far from the epicenter never materialized by Sunday. Authorities had lifted the warning after waves half the predicted size tickled the shores of Hawaii, and tourists once again jammed the beaches and restaurants. Scientists acknowledged that they overstated the threat, but defended their actions, saying they took the proper steps and learned the lessons of the 2004 Indonesian tsunami that killed thousands of people who didn't get enough warning. It's a key point to remember that we cannot end the warnings. Failure to warn is not an option for us, said Lin Wang, an oceanographer at the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center in Hawaii. We can't have a situation that we thought was no problem, and then it's devastating. That just cannot happen hundreds of thousands of people fled the shorelines for higher ground Saturday in a panic that circled the Pacific Rim after scientists warned 53 nations and territories that a tsunami had been generated by the massive Chilean quake. It was the largest scale evacuation in Hawaii in years, if not decades. Emergency sirens blared throughout the day, Navy moved ships out of Pearl Harbor, and residents hoarded gasoline, food, and water in anticipation of a major disaster. Some supermarkets even placed limits on their items like spam because of panicked buying. Uh, at least five people were killed by a tsunami on Robertson, Crusoe Island, off the Chilean coast, as huge waves devastated the port city of uh, Chuchano, near hard-hit conception on uh, Chile's mainland. Um, but the threat of the mo- monster waves that left Hawaii sun Beach is empty, for hours never appeared. A stark contrast to the tidal surge that killed 230,000 people around the Indian Ocean in 2004 and flattened entire communities. This time, the wave, waves of more than five feet were reported in Kuna Bay, Maui, in, in Hilo, Hilo. On the eastern coast of Hawaii's Big Island, but little damage was actually done. Predictions of wave-hyphen areas were off by as much as 50%. Tonga, 50,000 people fled in Japan. Uh, 400,000 people were evacuated out of coastal communities, but only a four-foot surge hit, uh, their island with very little damage. Science. Uh, scientists are offering no apologies for the warning and defended their work, and all worrying that a false alarm could lead to complacency among coastal residents, a disastrous possibility in the earthquake-prone Pacific Rim. What do we learn from all this? We learn, one, science is not magic. Sometimes it's wrong, just like sometimes it could be wrong about global warming. I'll leave it go there, though. It just bugs me if people worship at the altar of science. Scientists can and will often be wrong. Wide-held scientific fact often falls apart in 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 the presence of new ideas and new facts and new information. So science can be wrong. We've learned that. We've learned that people will complain even when someone warns them if nothing goes wrong. So what we've learned is that people, I'm so upset that I had to leave, and then I get to come back and nothing happened to my house. And because of that, governments tend to be hesitant to issue evacuation orders. And we'll probably see hesitance to do this now in the future when it really needs to be done. Boy, cried wolf syndrome. But here's the big thing I learned. This weekend, I was watching uh, the news, and there was this lady shopping at a grocery store in Hawaii, standing there like everything was perfectly normal, said, well, I'm here to buy five days' worth of food because that's what they said I should do. Okay, giant freaking tsunami, as far as you know, is heading at your islands. And instead of getting away and getting safe and just hunkering down and waiting for it to happen, you're running out to the grocery store buying so much spam that the grocery store has to put a limit on the god awful stuff. This is what I learned: people are idiots when it comes right down to it. People are not prepared. How can you live in a place like Hawaii and not be and not have five days worth of food anyway? You live on a volcanic freaking island on the Pacific fire rim where there's volcanic activity and earthquakes all the time. Hey, you know, I'm just on my way home from work and I'm going to run out and pick up five days' worth of food? This is why we have to be prepared all the time because you're living in Hawaii in the most... Of beautiful places of the world. Hawaii's amazingly gorgeous. The weather's beautiful most of the time. Very little, even the fact that it is a volcano, ever seems to really go that wrong. And then all of a sudden, there's an earthquake thousands of miles away that could destroy your life and your property. And it didn't happen this time. That doesn't mean it can't happen. That doesn't mean it that it won't happen. We saw what happened in Indonesia with that quake. And what happened there was basically two of the Earth's plates kind of built up the pressure against each other. And instead of a typical pushing against each other, one kind of basically, you got to think of it as like it popped out from underneath the other one. And that's what made that wave so powerful. But there's lots of things that can make waves powerful. Folks, there is a volcano on an island on the Atlantic coast of Africa. can't remember the island, can't remember the volcano. But eventually, science is pretty sure, I mean, they can't be 100% right, but pretty sure that sooner or later there will be a volcanic event on that island, that when that happens, the entire side of that mountain will eventually collapse and it will fall into the water. And it should uh, create a tsunami on the east coast of the United States unlike anything we can ever think of. That could happen tomorrow or it could happen 25 million years from now. We don't really know, but science in their best guess says sooner or later it's going to happen. All of, no matter where you live, there's something that you don't think can affect you that can. We get, a, we get a pandemic, we're all affected. You live in a coastal region, there's always a threat of a tsunami. Always. Even if you live in a place where there's never been one, as far as you know, there's always the threat of a tsunami. If you want to understand this, Go look at a quiet body of water, a little pond or a lake that there's, when there's no wind blowing, throw a rock in there and watch what happens. When water's disturbed, it moves and the radiation goes outward. And the energy is transferred with the water. And when it, it, when it gets into natural tidal flows, it can actually be increased in magnitude over time. These are things that occur. And it's important that we be prepared always. We always have those plans. To hunker down and to evacuate, depending on which one is going to give us a better chance of survival. That we're always equipped with some level of emergency food in our homes. Folks, I don't think you should be anything less than 30 days. I think that is the absolute minimum of food stores that should be in your home. I think you should work really hard to get to 90. And I don't think six months is anything approaching overkill. And if I had my druthers, most of the Americans would have a year's supply of food on hand. But I'm, I can't only do so much. But if we had everybody with 30 days of food on hand, we would get through 99% of whatever could go wrong. And most of that, now this is where I want to tie it in at the end to you, to you, for you today. If people just had a month's supply of food, medical supplies, comfort items, and backup things for water and emergency power available to them, to them and made that part of how we lived, if it was just that much, if we let everything else go that we talk about here, then what we talked about earlier, where the disaster's not the problem, but people's reaction to it is, would not happen. Generally speaking, if people know they'll be okay for the next 30 days, they don't go out and do things they normally wouldn't do. What makes people go into the mob mentality? What makes people go steal from their neighbor, rob, shoot, kill, beat? What makes people do that? A belief that they will not survive long enough for things to return to normal. That normal's never coming back, at least for them. When they feel that I'm not going to be fed for three weeks, and I'm not going to have water for three weeks if I don't take my own actions, and if I have to steal it to get it, then I'm going to do that, because if I don't do it, I'm going to be gone. When people get to that desperate mode, that's when they'll do anything. But if you're sitting at home, and a disaster has occurred, and you can make it at least 30 days, then most of the mayhem that goes on around you doesn't affect you. And 30 days is generally, in in, in 99% of situations again, enough time for some semblance of order to be restored. And some semblance of normalcy to come back. Even if it's not normal, at least people can get things again. Now, can we have bigger disasters than that? Can we have things that take us out for six months or a year? You damn well bet we can, and that's why I say 30 days is a minimum. But, God, get there. How hard is it really to just go, you know what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy all the rice and pasta and, and, and dehydrated potatoes and some canned milk and all the things that we would use throughout a year. I'm going to buy a year's supply of just that stuff, and that will be enough to get us through a month if we have to. It will be bland. It will suck. It will be boring, but I'm going to buy this stuff anyway. It saves well anyway. It stores well anyway. Why don't I just get a year's supply of this stuff that we use occasionally throughout the year, and then I can fall back on that as a year's supply Put up a couple freaking cases of ramen noodles if you have to. But get started somewhere with food storage and water. you got to have water and food. Water and a way to purify water. You do that. And then branch out to some basic comfort items. Some some uh, lighting, specifically some of the lighting that's never going to run out for you. Crank flashlights and things like that. Uh, emergency radio equipment, so a little emergency weather radio. Uh, hand crank radio. Anything that can work without electricity for a long time. Uh, maybe a little bit of solar redundancy. Hey, if you do that, you'll get through it. Again, 99% of what could possibly go wrong. But if you don't do that, if you don't do that, and you ever have one really bad day, you're going to regret your decision not to take action for the rest of your life. That's not why I get on this, this, this uh, the computer every day and do the show, so that people will sit and listen and be educated and entertained, but not take action. I do, because I want you to take action. Because there's people that depend on you. That one day, the people in your family that think you're crazy, because you do these things, one day, they may see why it was so important for you to do them. And one thing I don't want to happen, not only do I not want you to regret your inaction, I don't want them to, at that point, regret the fact that they talked you out of taking action. So these simple things... Whatever you have to give up to make them happen, give it up and make them happen. 30 days of sustainability, it's not too much to ask for. Your family's worth it. If you do that, you know, everything from there gets easier. Well, folks, I think I'll wrap up today. I know I'm kind of on a down note there because I want people to understand that this is real. But I want to finish with the positive aspects of this. If you do have 30 days, think of how bright your future is. Anything that anybody throws at you short of smashing your house flat to the ground, anything short of that doesn't affect you for 30 days. You have 30 days to figure out a solution. That's a great situation to be in. It makes you live your life in power versus fear. And with that thought, I will wrap up. This has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream you can holler, it really doesn't matter, cause it all gets spent.